all the universe. And he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our adoration. And therefore, he has the worth to speak to us and to tell us the proper way as our creator how to live our lives. And so we're going to continue that as we begin to look at the word this morning. We have, over the last three weeks, been talking about the church, the nature of the church, what we would call the doctrine of the church, or ecclesia, it's the fancy word that uh, theologians and guys that go to seminary use to describe what we're talking about. The first week, we looked at a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, that the church is a spiritual house. That is the metaphor that Peter used. He talked about Jesus being the cornerstone, then he said, you and me, we are like stones being built into that house, a place where God dwells. Last week, we looked at three churches from Revelation chapters 2 to 3 that were sick, dying, and ultimately dead churches. Churches that had, number one, turned away from the preaching of God's word, so they had stopped listening to the cornerstone. They were churches that, as a result of having turned away from the word, they had started living a lifestyle that was contrary to what the scriptures clearly teach. They had begun to live a compromised moral lifestyle. And then ultimately, the, the end result of all of that, the fruit was that, as we come to that last church, it had forgotten the gospel entirely. And so it was described as a dead church, which reminds us that as living stones being built together as a spiritual house for God to dwell in, we always have to hold, number one, to the word of God. We always have to strive to the best of our ability with the power of the Holy Spirit to live faithful lives that are obedient to the word of God. And number one thing we must always hold in order to be a true church is we have to always hold to the gospel, that no matter what we do, we are ultimately saved by our faith in Christ alone, and what he did for us on the cross alone. I want you to get it in your mind this morning as we begin to look at our text. Peter uses this metaphor that you as an individual are a stone being sort of like, like bricks, being sort of mortared in, being fixed into a, a larger dwelling, a larger house for God. And ask yourself this question. Peter, as he's writing First Peter, and using that metaphor, you're a living stone being built on the cornerstone, where do you suppose he got that metaphor? Where do you suppose that came from? We're going to see that as we look at the text this morning. Before we, before we dig in, we need to ask God to help us to understand with his spirit. So let's, uh, let's ask him to help. Father, we thank you that you're here now with your spirit as you indwell each of us who have trusted in you. We thank you, Lord, that we have the gift of the spirit. He is our true teacher he opens our minds to understand and to believe what it is that you are saying to us in your word, Lord. We just thank you for that. Lord, we're going to see some things this morning that will confront us, particularly in the way that we tend to think about church in the 21st century. I pray, Father, first of all, that you would help us to be humble, that we would not be so attached to our ideas of what church ought to look like, that we're incapable of humbly hearing your truth proclaimed here in this text before us this morning. So first, Lord, I pray that you'd humble us. Secondly, Lord, I pray that no matter how difficult this passage is that we're about to encounter, that you would enable us to receive it by faith. And lastly, Lord, we pray, God, that you would help us to change our lives, to live as a church according to the prescription that you have laid out for us in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, as I was in seminary, I heard a lecture that was given by an individual by the name of Mark Dever. 
he began his lecture with this shocking statement. This is how he began. If you are not a member of the church you regularly attend, you may very well be going to hell. Whew. Now that was a shock statement intended to get our attention. And I'm just asking you this morning, as you're sitting here, do I have your attention? I'm sure I do. Now, Pastor Dever, he pastors a church in, in Washington, D.C. He went on to clarify exactly what he means. Salvation, first off, let's be very clear about this. Salvation, salvation is always a result of your placing your faith and the totality of your hope in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. We all affirm that. The question is, when we place our faith in Christ, the transformation that takes place in our heart, what does a transformed Christian look like? What sorts of commitments does a, a transformed Christian make? Now, as a seminary student, we are all passionate to go out and eventually take a position as a pastor in a church, and we all have different ideas and notions on how we're going to do it, how we're going to be better than the pastors we grew up under and the, the traditions that are basically sacred cows that we're going to get rid of and, and the new things we want to start and the new things we want to do. And we're all filled with idealism and vigor. And I have to tell you, honestly, graduating class of 2000 and, oh shoot, six, 2006, that was my graduating year. Graduating class of 2006, none of us thought that church membership was something important that it was just some shoddy tradition baked up by churches of yesteryear. One of the things that I've become increasingly convicted of is that the Bible everywhere in the New Testament particularly speaks of belonging to a church family. And that's exactly what Jesus talks about here. The thing I want you to look for as we dig into this text here is that yes, while salvation comes through faith alone and Christ alone, a truly saved person as a result of their conversion, will absolutely seek the company of fellow worshipers and will seek to bind himself to those fellow worshipers. Look with me in the text. It begins in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who, who do people say that I am? This is his favorite term for himself. He's used it throughout his ministry to refer to himself. And so he gets his disciples together. He's got the 12 guys there at Caesarea Philippi. They're as far north from Jerusalem as they're ever going to be. It is at this point, after he has this conversation with his disciples, in fact, Luke tells us he sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And he begins making it explicitly clear to these guys the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. But before any of that happens, he poses the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It sounds like a very good sort of intellectual debate, like an intellectual conversation. The various scholars and the various critics and pundits, you know, the ones that are debating about me, what, what's the going theory? What's, what's everybody saying? Who do people think that I am? And it, he's asking an identity question. It, it would be similar to you know, Superman sitting down and saying, you know, who, what's my secret identity? You know, who, who am I when I'm not Superman? Or Batman alluding to, or I should say Bruce Wayne alluding to who he might be when he's a superhero and he's not a filthy rich millionaire, right? And who is Jesus? What is the secret identity? Who is he really? And he starts by saying, who do other people think I am? Okay, and here's their response. They say to him, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the other 
prophets. You could be a prophet, you could be one of the great prophets of old come back from the dead to, to preach to us. Any of those things are possible. And that's what the people out there are saying, that you're a really good prophet, come back from the dead. Now, Jesus is going to make it very pointed, setting all the analytical conversation aside, setting all the punditry aside, all the commentary, social commentary. He asks them a pointed question, who do you say I am? Where do you hang your hat? Am I just a prophet, even a really great prophet from of old? Who do you say I am? And Peter's response, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you and I, most of us are here, we've been going to church our whole lives. That's sort of the obvious conclusion for us at this point. You know, if Jesus is to pose the question to you and me, who who am I? We're going to say, you're Jesus. You're the Son of God. You're the Savior of the world. You're the Messiah. You're the one that takes away our sins, that imputes your righteousness to us and makes us holy before the eyes of God. We would say that in a nutshell. It's not so clear to these guys. Can I get a little bit more volume, Lydia? Thank you. It's not so clear to these guys. They, uh, they have all the Old Testament scriptures that prophecy of the coming Messiah. It talks about him being a suffering servant, but it also talks about him being a conquering king. And while Jesus undoubtedly is going around and performing miracles and healing people and taking away their diseases and casting out demons and doing all those wonderful things, while he is undoubtedly serving the people of Israel, they're also looking for somebody who will be a conquering king. And Jesus doesn't exactly fit that description just yet. So for Peter to say this statement, knowing that there are many scriptures which would identify Jesus as the king, the coming Messiah, there are also many other scriptures that he hasn't fully satisfied. He steps out in faith. He says, you are the Christ. Now, that is a stretch because Peter is biblically minded. He is grounding his ideas of who Jesus is and who the Messiah is and what that ought to look like based on the scriptures. And while Jesus undoubtedly fulfills a lot of them, He hasn't fulfilled all of them yet. So how did Peter come to this understanding? How did he become so convinced and so sure that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah? Jesus gives us the answer. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Didn't matter which synagogue you went to, it didn't matter who your favorite rabbi was, it didn't matter what classy podcast you were listening to on the internet. Nobody told you this except God the Father in heaven. That's what he says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now that's the context to what Jesus is about to start talking about, which is the church. This is the first time the word is ever mentioned in the New Testament. The context of any discussion about the church comes down to this. First, you've got to know who Jesus is, and you know that you know that because God the Father revealed it to you. With that clearly understood, that Jesus is Lord and King and Savior, and we only know that, we only come to any kind of faith in that as a result of God's working in our heart, here's what Jesus says. I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, rock, and he's going to change the word here. And on this rock, it's, he changes declensions. We won't get into all that today. 
on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there is a clear distinction between the way that he addresses Peter and the, the change in the terms of the rock in terms of how he's going to build his church. Peter has just made a confession of faith in Christ, and the word that he uses to describe upon this rock almost certainly refers not to Peter, but to the confession of faith, okay? He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, this confession of faith, I will build my church. Where did Peter come up with this idea in 1 Peter that the house of God, that the church is like a spiritual house of living stones being built together? It came from this moment right here. The word Peter means rock. When Jesus talks about on this rock, he's undoubtedly referring to himself as the cornerstone and Peter's confession in Jesus as the Messiah. On that rock, the church gets started. On that confession of faith, people start being built together into a house. This is the first time the word church is used, but it, it gets a little bit more pointed. Look what he says here. Verse 19, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, which means the only enduring institution that will survive to the end of time is this gathering and others like it. The church will survive. Everything else will come under the judgment of God and fall by the sands of time. But this will endure. His statement, verse 19, he says, the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Verse 19, here is the critical function. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So as you are coming together, being built together as a spiritual house, you need to understand that as you join with this family, Jesus himself is putting a key of sorts into your hand. What do you do with that key? How do you use it? What is it for? He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and here's what you do with the key. Whatever you, look at this, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Both of those statements utilize a participle which is in the past tense. So to really understand what Jesus is saying here, I'm just going to clarify the text for you. His statement to Peter and the other 11 disciples that are gathered there, I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You get the key. And this is the key. Whatever you bind on earth, past tense participle, shall have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you let loose on earth shall have already been let loose in heaven. That's critical to understanding what we do here as a church. That is at the heart of what it means to be a church. Jesus' statement is that you and I have been entrusted with awesome power, the power of life and death. Not that we save people, but that the church has been given the authority to recognize those who have been saved by God. We are called in recognition of that salvation, to bind them into this church. Or, if we recognize that they're not truly saved, we are called by this text to let them loose from this church. 
Binding and loosing. You hear that word and you think to yourself, well, what does that really mean? To exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we in this church have to be doing this job of either binding people in or letting people out, loosing them. What, is that, what does that mean? I want to define the word for you, not according to Webster's Dictionary, although Webster's Dictionary would define it accurately. I want to show you exactly what this word means from the word of God. I've got a couple of scriptures I'm going to have thrown up on the, verse, up on the screen behind me. The first the, the first one I want to show you where this word, this Greek word for binding is utilized comes from Matthew 13, 30. Jesus is telling a parable about this enemy that comes into this guy's field and he sows it full of weeds and he says, you know, you got to bind all the good wheat together and keep it and you bind all the weeds together and you burn it. Here's the exact statement. Let both, talking about the weeds and the wheat, let both grow until harvest and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and notice the word and bind them into bundles. So, in the same way that you'd bind together a bale of hay or bind together a, you know, sheaves of wheat, Jesus uses this word to talk about binding together the weeds, okay? So whatever Jesus is saying in Matthew 16, the first principle of interpretation, you want to look where that word is utilized, if at all possible, by the same person doing the talking within the same book. And here's the nearest, closest reference. When Jesus is using this word binding, he's talking about some sort of a coming together, being wrapped together, being literally bound together. That's what he's saying. But we find this elsewhere in the, in the Gospels and throughout the rest of the New Testament. John eleven forty four. Again, there's a man that has passed away, and he's been wrapped with burial cloth. In John eleven forty four, it says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound, or depending on your rap, translation, wrapped, same Greek word, wrapped, with linen strips, linen strips. Something had been wrapped around him, burial clothes. It's this idea of this coming around, this joining together, this being tied together sort of idea. It can also be utilized, uh, it can be translated chained. Mark chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, talking about the uh, gathering demoniac. It says, he lived among the tombs and no one could, notice the word, bind him anymore. They tried to tie this guy up. He's clearly possessed by a demon. They tried to bind him even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And so they tried to do that, and he kept breaking that off, so they didn't try anymore. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. And perhaps most significantly, when we talk about this idea of binding, particularly as we're talking about it within the context of a church, we're talking about relationships. Notice how Paul uses it in Romans chapter 7. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, then she is released from the law of marriage. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound, already bound in heaven. Not that we grant salvation, God grants salvation. And whatever you let loose on earth shall have already been let loose on in heaven. He is not talking about a casual sort of affair. He is not talking about a bunch of people who get together and hang out every once in a while. He is talking about a more formalized relationship where we are called upon to recognize, to scrutinize and recognize whether or not a person's profession of faith in Christ is legitimate, and if it is, to join them into our church family. One of the ideas that I had in seminary 
is that membership is nowhere a biblical concept. You don't find the Apostle Paul in any of the New Testament letters saying, you really need to think about joining the church. You don't find him saying that because it is everywhere assumed. What you find if you carefully read the New Testament is that it is a foregone conclusion based on Jesus' initial teaching of the church is that when people get saved as a result of their conversion, they will naturally seek out fellow worshipers. They will naturally seek to intertwine their lives into the, into the other people's lives who are also worshiping Christ. And if you really look at the New Testament with that perspective in mind, it's everywhere supported and everywhere reiterated. All of the love one another passages, all of the serve one another and care for one another, all of the forgive one another passages, all of these passages in the New Testament in terms of how we're to live together presuppose that we will actually be striving to live together and intertwine our lives one with another, which means that whatever ideas we have about church, we cannot think of it as a casual sort of come-if-I-feel-like-it affair that happens on a regular weekly basis. We certainly can't approach it with a consumer mindset. Well, this week, I think I might do a little shopping at that church, but then next week, if I fancy it, I might go over there to the other church and spend time with them. That is nowhere taught in the New Testament. We're called to intertwine, to be bound together. If you want to use the more extreme descriptions that we find in the New Testament, to chain ourselves to one another, the old ball and chain, and yes, it even goes so far as to talk about the marital relationship in terms of the old ball and chain. If you and I approach our time with each other in a sort of indifferent, take it or leave it, come or go as I please affair, then we're not really honoring the Lord's teaching. We're not really following through with his commands. Now, knowing that God speaks to us for our blessing, what we're really doing then is shortchanging ourselves from the blessing that God wants to work in our lives. Jesus makes this statement to Peter. You got it. You got it. You were saved as a result of your faith, which was revealed to you by the Father in heaven. And now you get the keys by extension, all the apostles are going to get the keys, minus Judas. And from there, they're going to start preaching the gospel. They're going to start adding people into this church. And you will find instances in the New Testament in which they also remove people from the church when it is determined that their profession of faith was not legitimate. That's what it means to wield the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which means that as a Christian gathered together here today, you have a responsibility to your king. He's coming back for his kingdom. He is coming with rule and authority and dominion. And his expectation of you as one of his followers, as one of his children, as one of his co-heirs to co-rule with him is that you'll begin to exercise that ministry of binding and loosing here and now within your local church. That's exactly what he says. So the principle we draw out of this passage is that one of the commitments that a truly converted, saved person will make is a commitment to a local church. Either he will begin preaching the gospel and seeking to add true worshipers to himself, or he himself will go and join with another body of true worshipers. And the reality is we should be doing both. Proclaiming the gospel, adding people, and ourselves joining to a body. That's what it says. 
how do you know that you're really saved? Have you ever struggled with assurance over your salvation? Have you ever thought, maybe I think I'm saved, but I'm not actually saved? One of the ways that we get assurance over our walk with the Lord that we truly are saved is through our brothers and sisters who have had opportunity to observe our lives, to say, yes, you are walking with the Lord, who have joined us to their church family. For the individual who doesn't believe that they need church, who's never attended church, but prayed undoubtedly some prayer at some point in time, you know, when they were a kid years ago, how does that person really know that there's been a change made in their heart as a result of their faith in Christ when nothing has changed in their life? You see, this is the difference between being self-justified versus being justified by Christ. One of the things that Jesus is doing in saving the world is establishing a new community, a new brotherhood among men. And if we would seek to live in that new community, in that one day coming, new heavens and new earth, then we should be willing to gather together with fellow believers and to love them and to invite them to love us and to walk together and to demonstrate and exhibit the true fruit of salvation amongst each other. That is what Jesus is saying here. The problem is that we too much live in what I would call sort of this yogi Christianity or yoga Christianity. Now, if you're here and you do yoga, hear me all the way through, okay? If you go to yoga because you like to stretch and practice breathing exercises as a means of relaxation, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I injured my back when I was in the Marine Corps and I was taught stretches and breathing exercises to help do physiotherapy when I, when I wrenched my back apart. If you go to yoga for breathing exercises, and if you go to yoga uh, to do stretching and, and all that, that's a good thing in terms of that aspect of it. There are actually demonstrable physiological benefits, increased circulation, blood flow, all of these sorts of things that come about as a result of stretching and practicing your breathing, okay? But do you understand what yoga really is? I have to ask, because I don't think that we necessarily approach certain things with a clear-eyed view. See, the yogis teach that essentially what is wrong with you is that you have a blockage within your spiritual energy self, okay? They teach that within the human body, you've got seven what they call chakras, okay? They're like these choke points. And essentially, I'm not making this up, this is how it was explained to me, essentially these choke points where your energy flows through, they get stuffed up or, or blocked or congested, and the energy can't flow through. And so then you feel out of whack, you feel unhealthy, and your chakras are plugged. And so what you need to do is you need to go stretch and breathe and undoubtedly pray to the Hindu, Hindu gods to get your chakras back into alignment. Again, if you stretch and breathe, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, with you and me, our stuffed up chakras never hurt anybody. Seriously, hear me all the way through here. First off, I don't think you have a stuffed up chakra. Why? Because the Bible never mentions anything like that. Your stuffed up chakra, if there is such a thing, never hurt anybody. 
You know what the problem with the world is? The problem with the world is me. The problem with the world is you. The problem with the world is not that I have some sort of constipated chakra on the inside of me. The problem with the world is that I willingly sin against other people. I naturally desire, as a result of my sinful, depraved heart, I want to slander people, I want to gossip about people, I want to lie to other people, I want to deceive, I want to manipulate, I want to cheat, I want to steal, and if I could get away with it in my sinful state, if individuals irritated me enough, yes, out of hatred, I would seek to murder people. That's the reality, is that you and I are wicked, that we are depraved. No chakra ever did anything to hurt anyone. Your sinful soul wills to hurt other people. And the solution is not trying to get your body into alignment to get all your chakras lined up properly. The Bible never even talks about those sorts of things. The solution is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. And while salvation is a one-man job, Jesus Christ himself saving you by what he does on the cross. Edification, sanctification, that is you becoming a better person, is universally described as a community undertaking. It's a group project. It's where you have to put your life into the hands of those around you. And you ask them to put their lives into yours. And you walk together. And you love each other. You take care of each other. You challenge each other. The only way you chip away at those sinful aspects of your soul is if you try to live with other sinful people. Like putting a bunch of really rough rocks into a bag and cycling it around over and over and over again until all the rough edges are chipped smooth. That's what Christ is calling you to do. Why don't we like to join churches? Why don't we like to actually intertwine our lives with those around us? Why don't we want to make that commitment? Three reasons. Number one, because we are infected with yogi Christianity. That is, we like to say, I need to make myself a better person, and I get to choose what that looks like. And so I'm going to go here for my stretching and my physiotherapy. I'm going to go there because I like that guy's preaching, but I like to go here because I like to worship there a little bit better. I'm going to take my kid to this other thing entirely. I'm going to go over there such that our commitments are no longer governed and defined by absolute biblical truth, but our commitments to each other are non-existent, and we engage in individualism and individual consumerism. Number one reason why we don't like to join a church is because we still want to be in charge of all that happens to us. And we still want to have the final say in what we do and where we go and how we worship. Number two. Number two reason why we don't join a church is because we are critical of what we clearly perceive to be a flawed body. There is no doubt this is an imperfect gathering. And I would be the first to say that chief among us in terms of his imperfections is even me. I struggle in many ways. The church is a flawed body because it is made up of flawed individuals. And for the individual who doesn't want to go and join with a church family because he perceives it's a flawed body, let's just assume hypothetically that it was perfect. He would be the one that would mess it up. You're supposed to be here because you're broken. Where else would you go? There is no, no other alternative. It's an excessively critical eye that only points out the faults and the failures of the church, of which there are many. 
And in doing that, ignores that nevertheless, this is still the family that Jesus died for. This is his bride. I don't know how you are with your wife, but with my wife, I love her. Yeah, sure, we both have faults and failures. And even on occasion, you might point out to me a shortcoming that I have, or maybe if I'm in a really good mood, a shortcoming that she has. But by far and large, I'm going to take exception if you criticize my wife. How do you feel, how do you think Jesus feels when we say to him, I don't have anything to do with your bride because of how horrible she is? This is not the worship of Christ. But really, I think the real reason that many of us don't want to give ourselves over to the church, we don't want to be bound to the church, we don't want to be joined to the church, we don't want to intertwine our lives with the church is because we're afraid of what might come out. When I attend business meetings, I am confronted with my own pride and my own ego because I'm convinced I know exactly what needs to happen. And I sit in a room with 40, 50, 60 other individuals who profoundly disagree with me. That's a great thing. It teaches me that I don't have it all figured out and that there, are, there is a higher wisdom that I need to be submitting myself to. But it hurts to be told you're wrong. We don't like to join the church because we don't want to be confronted in our own particular failures because whenever we're told that we fall short or that there's something we could be doing better or some other way we could be worshiping God more purely, that would hurt us. We would feel like we've lost face, we've taken a hit to our reputation. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus says that because of who you truly are, he has to actually die. There's no greater criticism than that. The fact that you deserve to die, and yet you get to free pass because he died. It doesn't really matter what I or anyone else might say about your walk with the Lord or your imperfections. I promise you there will be no greater criticism than the one you receive the moment you truly understand the gospel. It is the most offensive thing about everything we do here. And Jesus, whose opinion is the only one that matters, he says he loves you anyway. Knowing everything about you, understanding every fault, every failure, every shortcoming, Jesus still loves you. And for you, he still goes to the cross. A couple of years ago, and it's still happening. The country of Angola in Africa went through a significant drought, and as a result of that, there has been enormous famine in the land. The United Nations World uh, Hunger Organization, Hunger Relief Organization, has done just about everything possible to alleviate the starvation that is taking place in Angola. One of the things that they disclosed in terms of trying to alleviate poverty and the starvation and the famine that is taking place there is they are taking seed and they are shipping it to Angola in order for the folks who live in Angola to plant that seed so that they can begin growing crops again. They've dug wells, they've done all kinds of different things to try and alleviate the drought, and now they're giving them actual seed. But the Angolan people have been starving for so long. Do you know what they're doing with the seed? They're eating it. They're taking the sacks of seed 
And rather than taking that seed and planting it and sowing it in the ground in order to produce a harvest that they could truly be nourished from, they are so starved and so hungry that they are chewing the seed so that all they get is this little kernel that gives almost no nourishment. When if you could take the time and the patience and have the faith to believe that God is going to make it grow, it could produce a plentiful harvest. I say, preacher, you took a little bit of a right turn there. I'm not sure what this has to do with church. Follow me all the way through. I think that fear keeps us from giving our lives to the church the way that hunger keeps the Angolan people from putting their seed in the ground. There is an amazing blessing waiting if we would take our life and sow it here among one another. But because of our fear, over what other people think. We're going to take the single solitary seed of our life and we're just going to keep it to ourselves. And we're going to rob ourselves of the blessing that comes from being committed to one another, from intertwining our lives together. Jesus makes a statement just before the crucifixion. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As he's facing the cross, as he's talking to his disciples, do you know what he's saying? Dustin read it earlier. I'm not preaching on it, but you saw the verse. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus' statement right here, right before he truly, literally dies on the cross, is, I have to do this. I have to perish. I have to die. If I don't, there's just me. I'm all by myself. But if I die, if I die, I'll bear much fruit and I won't be alone. Your life can be kept in a tight fist by yourself. You can do that. But I want you to understand that God's call to you is not that you would keep it like a fist, but that you, like a seed tightly in your fist, but that you would sow it here as you deny yourself, as you die to yourself, as you invest in those around you, as you seek their edification in your own life. The harvest is far and above anything you could possibly imagine. Paul makes a similar statement in Galatians. He says, don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. God isn't mocked. What a person sows, that he reaps. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Therefore, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good, especially to the household of faith. The blessing is there. The harvest is waiting. All that needs to happen is for you to give yourself to this family or to a church family, wherever God leads you. Wherever God takes you and whatever becomes of you, I encourage you this morning, as you think about what it means to be a child of God, know this. 
A child of God binds himself to his church family. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together this morning in your word. Lord, we know that you say difficult things. We know, Father, that you challenge us. We know, Lord, that your design for us is oftentimes radically different than our own design for ourselves. Father, we know that we can go through the membership process. We can check off all those ticky boxes, and yet we can still remain isolated and alone. I pray, Father, that you would challenge us this morning, Lord, that you would lead us this morning, that you would guide us this morning to give ourselves away to each other to love each other, and to live our lives together, truly interwoven as you would have us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.